you will turn to Romans chapter 5. We will continue our study in the book of Romans. Read a short portion this morning in chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. This is God's word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put, I'm sorry, hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for the Holy Spirit, and we thank you for the Word through which the Spirit works. And Right now we pray for your blessing on the Word, that from the youngest to the oldest, that your Spirit would take your Word and apply it to our hearts. Empower me to preach your Word by your Holy Spirit. Empower us to hear it, by the Spirit, to love it as the Word of God and to seek to understand it and live in its light. There's much for us here as we seek to live faithfully for you in a dark and confusing and painful world. So we look to you this morning to bless the preaching and the hearing of your Word, to lift high your Son to Convert and sanctify your people. Build and bless your church with your word, we pray. In the holy name of Jesus. Amen. They were devout Christians who helped anyone who was in need. They had been blessed to celebrate the 100th year anniversary of a family business, a watchmaking business. Life was very good for this family, but the political atmosphere was quickly changing. Hitler was gaining more and more power. One day, one of their sons was arrested for playing the Dutch national anthem in church. Hitler's rage against the Jews was gaining a foothold in the nation. The family begins hiding Jews and others who were being hunted by the government. They begin hiding them in their home. And they succeeded for a while, and it worked for a while. But eventually, the Tin Boom family was arrested. And they had no idea where they were going. 
But they ended up in, in the German camps. Corey's father dies in the camp. Her brothers are eventually released. But she and her sister Betsy are in it for the long haul. They would spend many years in the German camps. And Betsy would be used, as weak as she was, to encourage Corey in the midst of their suffering and strengthen her faith. They would even do Bible studies with the prisoners and were able to sneak and do that in the camps. But eventually, Betsy succumbs and she dies in the camp. But Corey's hope grows through tears and eventually she's released and she would be used worldwide in the later years of her life. All of her suffering had given her a platform for the gospel both to live it out and proclaim it and one of her quotes was this there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. I would encourage you to learn more about Corey Ten Boom and about the Ten Boom family and their life. You can watch. There, there are more than one production of The Hiding Place that you can watch as well as read the book. You always get more information by reading the book. But, uh, but today, see, we're going to talk about rejoicing in suffering. We're going to try to see how the gospel transforms our thinking and our suffering then therefore is transformed from something that seems useless or even wrong to something of eternal value in the Lord Jesus Christ. See we've come up through the book of Romans so far. We've seen Paul demonstrate that everybody needs a savior. That Jew and Gentile are lost and need a Savior, that we all fall short of God's glorious standard, which is keeping His law in thought, word, and deed from cradle to grave. And so He established Jew and Gentile guilt, and then halfway through chapter 3, He puts hope into the picture that the righteousness of God, the righteousness required by God, is available through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not by our works and effort to be saved, but by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, being justified through faith, and faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's brought Abraham as a witness, and we spent a lot of time talking about Genesis 15, 6. It was credited to Abraham as righteousness, his faith in God, and so that that was written not only for him, but for us who also are justified through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we saw last week Paul's kind of turning a corner here and saying, since we have been justified, then these things are true of us. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But today we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 5 in chapter 5 and see this, hopefully. Since the gospel is true, and all of our suffering will be used for good, we should rejoice in our hardships as instruments of grace. Since the gospel is true, and it is, proved by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore all of our suffering will be used for good, and our there as children of God, those who are trusting in Christ, we should rejoice in our hardships 
as instruments of grace. And we start this morning in verse 3 with a potentially confusing statement. That's why I said that. We have a con- First we have a confusing statement. He says in verse 3, not only that, pointing back to what we saw, and I'll point you back to last week's sermon on, on uh, verses 1 and verses 2, having peace with God, standing in grace, and therefore hope for the future. And he said at the end of verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of glorification. We rejoice in the hope, think about it, of their sin being taken away, Therefore, misery being taken away. We rejoice in, rejoice in the hope of no troubles in that day. But now he flips it. Look in verse 3. Not only that, but this is present tense. We rejoice in our suffering. And sufferings there is plural. See, we've already seen rejoicing in future glory in which will be freedom from trouble. And we're going to see rejoicing again in verse 11 when we, when we get there in chapter 5. But Paul is powerfully putting forth the, tr- the glorious response to the truth of the gospel. Paul is saying that we have everything we need, even in the midst of our suffering, even through our tears, to live lives of rejoicing in God and His grace to us in Christ. I mean, if you remember in Philippians 4.4, what does he say? And I say to you, rejoice in the Lord when you feel good. Rejoice in the Lord most of the days. Rejoice in the Lord always. So if he's going to tell us to do that, we must have the fuel needed to do that. But notice here, as we said last week, these are statements of facts. They're not really commands in this text. This is, just, this is what is true of those who are justified by faith. We're at peace with God. We stand in grace. We hope for glory. And now we rejoice in our sufferings. Paul's confidence because of being justified by faith and faith alone rises to the level of rejoicing in suffering. The word here used for suffering means the pressure. It's a general word and notice it's a plural word. Some people think this only means the result of persecution or the persecution, the result of being out there for Christ. It would include that, but it's more than that. It's a general word that means the pressures and troubles Christians endure in this evil age. The pressures and troubles Christians endure in this evil age. So it's not just persecution. We rejoice in our sufferings because we've been justified by faith alone. David said in Psalm 119.71, notice this, this sort of, he had gotten, begun to get his mind around the productivity of suffering in this life. It says this, he said, David said, it is good for me that I was afflicted. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. See, as a child of God, affliction is never wasted. Trials are never wasted. God is at work through our struggles to produce Christ's likeness in us. He doesn't say, it was good for me that I was afflicted because I really enjoyed it. No, he says, it has been discipline in my life because I have learned 
to your statutes. Implication that I might walk better in them. Y'all are all familiar too. Paul is saying we rejoice in our sufferings. James said something similar. I'll give you part of that right now. In verse 2 of chapter 1, James says, Count it all joy. Now that is a strong statement, isn't it? Count it mildly joyful. No, count it all joy. It kind of reminds me of Jesus when he says, Leap for joy when you're persecuted for my name's sake. Count it all joy. Count it big time joy. Count it as way up there joy. My brothers, when you get everything you want, when you meet trials of various kinds, and in James it is a command there. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This is another example of something I've been trying to sort of beat into our heads and refresh in my own. For us, something for us never to forget. Don't just yank verses out of context. This seems crazy, irrational, irrational, unattainable. If we just pull this out like we don't see the rest of the context and it just says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Sounds like you're saying, I like to suffer. Sounds like you're crazy. But no, that's not what Paul's saying. He doesn't say the gospel is making us nuts. But it's sufficient. So how do? If this is true, Paul, and if you're saying that believers rejoice in their suffering, they must have a really different mindset than our natural mindset. So how do we get there? And thankfully, he tells us, So it was a confusing statement, but it's followed by a clarifying word in 5.3b to 4. Look at that little word, knowing. Okay. All right. So we rejoice in our sufferings because there's something we know. Paul says we rejoice in our suffering, comma, he's going to explain, knowing that suffering is productive. We'll stop right there for now. Because we know rejoicing flows from knowing here, okay? Knowing our God. Knowing who He is. Knowing what He has done. Knowing what He promises for the future. See, we've seen Paul in Romans explaining God's holiness and His righteousness and His justice as He holds the entire world accountable for sin. But we also have seen His grace and His mercy and His kindness as He offers us salvation in His Son. So Paul has been teaching us about God before this point in the book of Romans. He's also been teaching us about what God has done. Right? If you remember back in chapter 3, when we talked about the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, it says that in verse 24, after saying we sin, everybody has sinned and falls short, it says we are justified in verse 24 by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. God's kids, God so loved the world, or God loved the world in this way, that He gave 
his only begotten son. And whosoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. See, I remember not only who my God is, if I remember who he is and I remember what he's done for me, first I remember what I deserve. I deserve condemnation, rejection, hell. I should already be there as far as what I deserve as a person. But God sent His Son, we'll see later in chapter 5, to die for His enemies, to pay the penalty for His enemies, to pay my debt. I deserve condemnation, but I get grace because of Jesus. Because God sent His Son that I might be saved. Christ died, the Scripture says in in, in 1 Corinthians 15, He died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried and raised the third day, proving it all true, offering salvation to us, as Romans 3, a free gift. God has done everything necessary to reconcile me to himself, including bringing me from death, dead in trespasses and sins, to life and faith in Jesus. So I remember... What my God has done. Is He your God? Has He done that for you? I don't know. Are you trusting Him? Kids, are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? You need to be. He's not just one way. He is the way. There is no other way. There is no other propitiation or atonement for our sins. Adults, youth, whoever you are, are you trusting in Christ this morning? You can't be good enough. Listen. You might get mad. You can't be good at all without Jesus, redemptively speaking, as far as earning your way to heaven. We don't even get started. All of our righteousness is filthy rags. So see, when I remember who God is, not just His righteous justice and holiness, yes, we want to know that, but His mercy and His grace and His justice, and that has been extended to me, and He has sacrificed His Son to save me. And then he's made promises of the future so that I can rejoice in the hope of glory we saw last time. Then I'm getting on a better mindset. James finishes up this way. He said, he said count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind. But he did the same thing Paul did. In verse 3 he says, for you know. See? Count it all joy by knowing. Why do you think I'm constantly after you to have this book in your heart? Because the more of this book's in your heart, the more you're going to walk stable in joy in the midst of the trials of this life. See, if we don't know, we can't rejoice. Because rejoicing comes from knowing. And knowing comes from head in the book. In Proverbs, Solomon uses the picture of mining for precious metal and jewels. That's hard work. That's digging down. And to mine for God's wisdom that way. I mean, love for him should be all we need to be in his book, wanting to know him. But there's promises of productivity. James says, for you know that the testing of your faith. Now stop. What does he mention? He said, count it all joy when you meet various kinds of trials. See, he's preaching like Peter now. The trials of this life test our faith. Just like fire tests metals to see, you know, if they're pure. That the testing of your faith, for you know that the testing of your faith, this is a believer, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may perfect and be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Suffering 
produces endurance in the life of the Christian. And, and, and more of the list. We'll talk about that in a second. But you see, Paul sees rejoicing and suffering as an outflow of understanding and applying the gospel. The one he's been preaching to us in chapter 5. All of our afflictions, if we're believers, all of our afflictions end up producing hope instead of destroying us. I, don't, I didn't say we wouldn't struggle through them. I didn't say we wouldn't you know, mourn through them or have a lot of pain. But if we're believers, all of our afflictions will end up producing hope instead of destroying us. Why? Because the Spirit is at work applying His Word. Left to ourselves, we'll wilt under the pressure. False faith won't survive the trials. But God, look what He says suffering does in the life of a Christian. Look what He says. He says suffering, in the last part of verse 3, suffering produces endurance. Patient endurance. Spiritual fortitude bears up under and is made stronger by suffering. Just like you, you know, the only way to strengthen the physical body is to make it suffer. Don't buy the pills and the mess they want to sell you on TV about you don't have to work out and you don't have to eat right. You just take this pill and you'll lose weight. Well, your wallet will lose weight, but there's no magic bullet, right? If you're going to get in shape, you're going to have to be willing to do some suffering. You know, weird thing, you start to enjoy it after a while because you know it's productive. But listen, think about running a marathon. Nobody just starts running a marathon. There's some levels of suffering you have to go through to reach that endurance necessary to run that marathon. So spiritually, affliction makes us stronger when God is with us. If you are a child of God, if you have true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, though you will suffer, and though you won't understand it all and you'll wish some of it wasn't there, all of your affliction will be cashed in for growth. Because if you're a Christian, you don't go to the spiritual gym. You live in it. Want to or not. Fact of life. Afflictions make us stronger when God is with us. Affliction mixed with unbelief, though, produces bitterness. See, affliction is meant... What did Jesus say? Jesus didn't preach like Joel Osteen. In this world, you will have trouble. Struggle, affliction, hardship. He said, it's coming. He's honest with us. Are these monitors on? Every time I wonder, I start hearing echoes. Are they muted? Anyway. Affliction makes the children of God grow. But mixed with unbelief. Beware of an evil heart of unbelief, the writer to Hebrews says. But look, look what else. Okay, suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. There are no shortcuts to character. Especially to moral character, spiritual character, to Christian character. This is a tested genuineness. After the believer endures many difficulties, a strength of character develops that was not previously there. 
What does that mean? We look more like Jesus. As we have walked with God through the trials of this life and through tears and struggle and heartbreak sometimes. Now listen, you might think I'm preaching this morning. You'll never have good and easy times. That's not true. But that's not all of life either. Praise God, there's enough of that to keep us going. We all need vacations, but we don't need to live on one. Character is produced as we've walked through struggle in faith in the Lord and He has grown us through it. Paul says in the life of the Christian, suffering produces endurance and induces, endurance improves, produces character. And then he says character produces hope. In the end, the believer's trials increase the believer's hope. Notice I said in the end. We all go through a process, don't we? When, when, when the affliction hits, we don't all, always immediately go, Hallelujah, what a Savior. It takes us a little bit of time to get there. But we have to remember what we know to get there. But in the end, the trials of the believer produce hope. They increase hope. There's moral transformation. There's growth through trials. It, testified to the genuine, it testifies to the genuineness of our faith when the trials don't crush us and cause us to chuck our, what we thought was faith in God. Hope like muscle will not grow stronger if it's not used. But hope assures us that God will finish the work He's begun in us. That glory we hope for is coming. It's just not here yet. We have great hope because we have Jesus who was a man of sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came. That's a hymn, right? Who walked through it to save His people and calls us to follow Him and tells us, in this world, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have trouble. I mean, He's not saying that those who don't follow Him don't have trouble. But he's going to cash it in for us. Paul is telling us that if we are believers and we're standing on the ground, the gospel ground that he's been preaching to us, then we are going to more and more look like this. People who rejoice in their suffering, not because they're crazy, but because they have hope in God and know that he's with them in the midst of it and that he's going to make it all somehow work for them. We trust God before we get to the promised land. We trust him in the wilderness because we have these things. And this is just some of the things Paul has been preaching to us. We have justification by faith alone. In Christ alone. We've been reconciled to God. We've been forgiven of our sins. We have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us as our record. We have therefore peace with God. We stand in grace. And we're hope. We have hope. Which is remember. Patient confidence in God. Patient. Hope is patient. In the Bible hope is patient confidence. It's not hope so, it's patient confidence in God. See, it's not my current circumstances, but God's grace that proves my soul is secure. That proves that He loves me. I've told you all this before. Do you, wanna, do you feel like God loves you? Right? Do you know that God loves you? How do you know that God loves you? It's not by looking inside to see if you feel like God loves you. It's by looking to the cross. If you didn't have anything else but that cross, you, have, you know God loves you. See, God's grace is what proves my soul is secure. My glory is coming. 
my God is with me and making all my affliction work for me. So that knowledge enables me to rejoice in it, maybe even through tears. Our souls are secure by His grace so that now your trials, as hard as they are, have to work for you instead of against you. We'll get there, but in Romans 8, 28, we all probably have this memorized anyway. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Notice it doesn't say all things are good, right? But God is overseeing all of that so that it all works together for good to make me more like Jesus. Somebody might steal my car or my wallet or, or you know, come up in for no reason and sock me in the head. That's a violation of his law. In and of itself, it's not good. But he promises to use that for good. Corey Tinboom, here's another quote from her. Life in raisin... Now watch this. I want you to pay attention to this because you see the two things happening at once. Here. The, the darkness and depression of the physical world with the light and growth of the spiritual life all in the same context. She said, Life in Ravensbrook took place on two separate levels. Mutually impossible. One, the observable, eternal, external. The observable, external life grew every day more horrible. This is for a believer. One who was faithful. The other, the life we lived with God grew daily better. Truth, now watch, truth upon truth. Glory upon glory. The life lived with God grew daily better. Why? Because His truth, the Spirit was at work growing her through His truth, even in the midst of horrible, horrible circumstances. We have a confirming word, a comforting word in, in, a, in, in knowing, clarifying word. We rejoice in our troubles because there's some stuff we know about our God. And then he gives us a comforting guarantee in verse 5. It says, Character produces hope, and this hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because we're good now. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Gospel hope will never fail. Resurrection proves it. The hope that we have in Christ won't put us to shame. And the way that we know that and abide in that is because God's Holy Spirit has been given to us who nurtures true faith and grows true faith in the midst of the most difficult trials. So in other words, what's the guarantee of our inheritance, the guarantee of our hope coming to fruition, our hope for glory? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit, which I wish all of you had been in Sunday school. talking. We talked about that this morning. Uh, great, great study on the Holy Spirit. I don't, know, you know, I don't know why more people don't come to learn about the Holy Spirit and, and all of that, but I'll leave that to you. Um, but it says this in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. Who has the Holy Spirit? Believers. 
But it says this, In Him you also, when, the, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of His glory. See, God has given us His Holy Spirit, and His Holy Spirit convinces us of God's love and helps us to live in the midst of our difficulties without losing confidence in God's love. And in fact, not just without losing our hope, but growing us in the midst through applying the Word of God to us. We have everything in Christ Jesus. Every one of you who are trusting in Jesus have everything necessary right now to live a life of rejoicing in the affliction that is part of your life, knowing that it comes through your Father's sovereign hands and He's in control of it. He's proved His love for you by showing you who He is and by sacrificing His Son. And He's given us great promises that guide our future so that we can live in a, in a state of gospel encouragement in the midst of our trials. I'm going to give this to you because I, just, I haven't quoted it in a while and I just hope you'll take it home and meditate on it and memorize it. But Heidelberg question one is a good thing to bring into this discussion if we talk about the hope that we have through the trials of life to the extent that we can even rejoice. But Heidelberg Catechism says this in question one, and this question one is kind of a summary of the whole catechism, so I encourage you to mind a bit in that. The first question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? Now we're going to go a little bit slowly, but catch this as I go through. What is my only comfort in life and death? Answer. That I am not my own. How much, I mean, how, how, how much of the day do we live as though we're our own? No, we've been purchased with a price, Christ. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm His. How do I know? Because He's given me faith in Him. Now watch to what Jesus has done. There's something about our God, what He's done, things we've been talking about. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. Remember, we were memorizing the verse in Colossians that He has transferred us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Now watch this. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed. Now here it is. Watch. Indeed. Because the gospel is true and because I'm in Christ, indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Remember, salvation is justification, sanctification, glorification. We're hoping for glory. The process is not finished yet. And because Christ has died for us and we're in Him and God is sovereign, He's telling me that even the hardest thing in my life, He's going to make it work for me and not against me. He doesn't tell me I'll enjoy it. He doesn't tell me I won't wish it wasn't there. I won't grieve, any of that. But He's saying He's going to make it work for me and not against me. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit... See, we're ending up same plane Paul did in text. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Go mine in that and, the, and the, the reference scriptures with that and it'll help you remember who your God is and what He's done for you and what His promises are to you. 
by His Holy Spirit that you can live in hope and therefore living in hope you can live in rejoicing. Paul says, those who are justified by faith rejoice in their suffering. And for some of us, that's a turn of thinking. Isn't it? We want to be free from our suffering. We don't like our suffering. We, we wish we were out of it. We don't see any use for it. We don't look for any use for it. Got to be careful. That's why Bibleless Christians are miserable Christians. Or maybe not Christians at all. Because you should have a thirst for this word. But be in the word so that you know. Remember Paul said we rejoice in our sufferings knowing. Basically, the gospel riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. Just a few points of application and I'm done. I just want to make some, some, say a few things that rejoicing in suffering is not and say something about what it is. And this, this will go faster. Number one, rejoicing in suffering does not mean that we do not grieve over our loss. Because a lot of times our suffering in this life is some form of loss. And the Bible doesn't tell us as Christians not to grieve. It just says, it says we do grieve, but we grieve as those who have hope. We don't grieve like those who have no hope. But grieving is part of the Christian life. Grieving over our own sin. Grieving over, you know, the world state. Grieving over, yes, our loss. But we grieve in faith. We grieve with God in the room. We grieve sitting in His lap. Our Father. Number two, rejoicing in suffering does not mean that we understand why whatever it was happened. We don't need to know why to rejoice. We don't believe that. Job didn't get the why. He lost a lot of his fortune and his property. He lost his children. He lost, but he never got the why. But you know what he got was the who. And having the who, knowing who his God was and what his God had done for him and the hope that he had in him was enough for Job. And listen, it's enough for us. We don't believe it, but it is. We have to start to believe it. So it does not mean we don't grieve, and it does not mean we don't, uh, that we do understand why it happened. Number three, rejoicing in suffering does not mean that we do not wish it never happened. Come on, some, just be real, right? Some things happen to us in this world that we passionately wish had never happened and that we don't understand. And we don't see how they could be good or used for good. That's part of walking by faith and not by sight, isn't it? But if we can keep our eyes on that cross and see everything through that cross, somehow we can know that we can trust Him, even with our tears, until we're in glory with Him. So it doesn't mean we don't grieve. It doesn't mean we understand everything. And it doesn't mean we don't wish it didn't happen. But here, here's a couple of things about what it does mean. Rejoicing and suffering does mean that I put my suffering in the context of who my God is, what He's done for me, and what He promises me in the future. I put my suffering in a gospel context. I, I see Jesus' suffering and His suffering for me. And I place my suffering in that context to know that that he, uh, he's with me, he understands, and he's going to make it work for me, that if he died for me, if he did that for me, what good thing will he withhold from me? 
I've told you before and I'll say it again. You better live with your gospel glasses on and your gospel better, the gospel and God better be between you and whatever it is you're dealing with. Interpreting it through God's promises and His grace. It means that I put my suffering in the context of the gospel. And last, listen, rejoicing in suffering means that even through tears and a lot of not understanding and all of that, it means I trust God with my suffering. I trust Him with my suffering. I know that He will bring good through it and transform me through it. His love in Christ should be enough to fuel my abiding trust in Him. A patient confidence that produces rejoicing even through tears. Because we have the Spirit. If you're a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee of your inheritance. And if you have the Spirit, your trials will not destroy you. You'll grieve in His presence and you can ask why, and he may, you may get that answer, you may not, you know, all of those things. But the cross proves you can trust him. You trust his suffering, you can trust him with your suffering. Some of you may have been wondering, and I know it got put up at least once, the house cleaning crew has not been slack in leaving this ladder out. And I don't know if you saw that hanging from the ceiling up there. But some of you who are observant did. And so what I'm going to do is echo through the speakers. I want to put this ladder right here. And I promise I won't fall off on it. <laughs> Lord willing. Cindy's like, yeah, you better pray. <laughs> Rejoicing in suffering. Okay, so we come to this concept. As an unbeliever, that makes no sense. The things of God are foolishness to the natural person. They don't have the spirit, so they don't understand. But watch me. Even as a believer... That's far from me. That's out of my reach. It's above my head. I can't get my mind around it just in and of myself. So if I'm neglecting the Word of God, if I'm neglecting what God has done for me in Christ, if I'm not filling my heart with Scripture, then even as a believer, this kind of seems pie in the sky, doesn't it? I mean, how consistently are you rejoicing in your suffering? But remember the role of the Word of God. That rejoicing in my sufferings requires knowing. It's a knowing God works in us if we're His. We resist it sometimes. But knowing, remember how I summarized it. So I'm a believer. I'm a child of God. I have the Spirit. And I'm, it says I do that. And it seems a way apart from me if I'm not dwelling in the Word. But. If I'm in the Word and, and, and the Word's in me and I remember who my God is, notice I've gotten closer to that status of rejoicing. And I'm a child of God and I'm in the Word and I remember what He's done for me. Oh, we're getting closer to it now. We're looking at the cross and Jesus and who He is for me and how He sacrificed Himself for me. And I stay in the Word, and now I remember what He's promised me. Glory. 
He's with me. He's cashing it all in to make me more like Jesus. And someday, when I die or He returns, set free. No more sin. No more misery. See, from up here, I can see my God's love and His sovereignty and His control and know that he, nothing comes into my life by accident. And I can trust that because Christ has lived and died for me and been raised for the grave. And living in Christ, then I read of His promise of my glorious future with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. From this perspective, everything looks a lot different. From a heavenly perspective, from a word mind, mind filled with the word perspective, now my suffering takes on meaning. And now there's hope in the midst of it so that I entrust it to my Father. And by the power of His Spirit, I begin to rejoice in my struggles because I know He's at work. And that I have everything I need right now for life and godliness. And part of life and godliness is rejoicing in my difficulty. There's no magic bullet. There's no shortcut. If you're not hiding the word in your heart, even if you're his child, you're going to live down here. And you're going to forfeit a lot of joy. Because gospel joy flows forever. In our highs and our lows and everything in between. If Christ, if my gospel glasses are on and I'm interpreting it all through who my God is, through what he's done for me, and what he promises to me. Suffering is promised, but for the child of God, suffering is never wasted. And every ounce of my suffering that he brings into my life is like a chisel in the hand of a master, chiseling away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. Here's an, I'll close with another quote from Corey. She said, let us remember that our present sufferings serve to prepare us for entering into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that Christ's mindset would be ours, that Philippians 2, that we'd have a gospel mindset, that we'd understand where we live, that we'd understand your promises, that we'd understand that, that, that our sufferings are productive, they're meaningful, they're not accidents. And Lord, that, we don't understand it all. We wish some of it wasn't true. But because of who you are, because of what you've done for us in Christ, and because of the hope you've given us in your promises, we can trust you with our suffering. We can pray less like you're a genie that we can boss around, and more a God that we submit to and love because he sacrificed his son for us. We can live faithfully for you in growing measure, the more that our minds are transformed by your truth. 
I pray that we would be a people of knowing, <laughs> knowing our God, knowing his gospel, knowing the hope that is ours in Christ, that we might be a people of rejoicing in the midst of the deepest, darkest holes in our life, knowing that none of them are deeper than your love than your grace than your promise that they only test our faith and that you use them to strengthen us and grow us in grace and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. If there are any out there who don't trust you this morning and who are listening and who are saying to themselves, oh, this is just foolishness, just help them to remember you said they'd think exactly that way. I pray that they would repent and trust you by your grace and have the spirit of the living God so that they could interpret things rightly with Christ in the center. And those of us who do know you, Lord, we're lazy with your word. We need a reinfusion, a revival, a, a re-immersion into the glorious gospel riches that are ours so that our love is fueled and flamed that we pursue you and knowing you and, and Lord Jesus following you. Grow us in being people of hope and therefore people of rejoicing in suffering to such an extent that people around us will say how in the world can you walk through that in faith? And then like Corey Ten Boom, we can tell them about a Savior who's for us and with us, who suffered for us, who suffers with us, and who promises to take us all the way home. Lord, we thank you for the gospel riches that are ours. And we thank you for the fact that your hope is so big that you produce in us that it can make us be people of rejoicing in our suffering through our tears. So help us. Grow us, convert us, sanctify us, do what you know is necessary in each heart that these gospel realities might be true in our lives. Help us to live in a knowledge of our God and of his gospel and of the hope that is ours through your promises. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.